0: In order to understand anybody, you need to know their story. Where did they come from? What mistakes have they made? What was their childhood like? Of course, if you live in St. Louis, there's the one classic question, right, that we all ask, what high school did you go to? And I've learned there are a lot of questions being asked in that one question. It's one of the quirks of our city but curiosity about your background isn't really unique to us because knowing somebody's story helps us to understand them. It doesn't really matter if they're a politician or if you are our kid's classroom teacher or you are our coworker. Knowing your story helps us to get where you're coming from and why you are who you are. And that couldn't be more true of the Apostle Paul, who used to be known as Saul, Remember? Saul of Tarsus, Saul the Pharisee, Saul the righteous, Saul the persecutor of the church, Saul the enemy of the followers of the way, as the first Christians were called. We're in this second week to Paul's letter to this church in Rome, this church that he's never met before. And we're asking, remember, what is the gospel that Paul is trying to get across to them and to us in this letter? And by now, I think we have a pretty good hunch that perhaps the gospel is not as formulaic as some of us were taught along the way. Maybe the gospel is not just about escaping the fires of hell that we deserve so that we can get to go to a paradise that we don't deserve. And as long as we're talking about hell, here's a fun fact for you. Paul never does. Not once in Romans, not once in any of his writings in the New Testament, he never mentions hell, let alone um, think about it. So just let that soak in for a minute, that Paul never mentions it. Paul certainly isn't shy, we know, right? He's not shy about talking about anything and everything that comes to his mind. In fact, some people don't really like Paul because he seems a bit too confident and a bit too pushy in what he does think, but apparently he does not think at all about hell because it's nowhere in his writings. It's not in his theological vocabulary, which means it's not in his theological imagination, his framework regarding whatever the wrath of God is that we just heard mentioned. To go or salvation. Hell is not part of the picture for Paul. And I want to invite you to really let that soak in. Maybe we don't know what Paul is talking about as well as we once thought. So, in order for us to get at Paul, it, I think, will go a long way if we keep in mind his story because his story reveals an awful lot of where he's coming from and how he understands the gospel of Jesus. So let's go back and remember just a few things. As I already mentioned and you may have already known, Paul was known as Saul in his former life. Remember, he was not one of the 12 disciples who walked around with Jesus. In fact, he never met Jesus in the flesh. He was this precocious young Jewish boy who didn't even grow up in Galilee or in the Promised Land. Saul grew up out in the Roman Empire in Tarsus. He was a Roman citizen speaking Greek and yet holding tightly to his Jewish identity the way that any minority group would do out in a culture that did not accept them. And so I imagine Saul growing up as this little kid who just loved his Jewish identity and he loved Torah drills and he probably always had one more star on his chart for his scripture memory than his uh, fellow kids did. Not only that, he probably could recite to you the Ten Commandments forwards and then backwards in reverse and he could probably tell you the difference between the Ten Commandments recorded in Exodus and the Ten Commandments recorded in Deuteronomy. And I bet you, if you didn't know, he'd be happy to let you know what that difference was. He was just kind of that kid. He liked knowing things and getting it right and being right. It just made him feel good. And as far as he was concerned, it was good for you to know too. So it probably wasn't any surprise when he became a Pharisee at a young age people saw it in him all along he was just that good and faithful and righteous at least that's that's kind of how i imagine him being by the way that he describes himself in some of his other letters in his letter to the philippians remember he said that if anyone could boast he could boast more he was a hebrew among hebrews he was born of the tribe of benjamin the tribe of david was born into As to the law, he was a Pharisee, full of zeal and passion. And when it came to righteousness under the law, right relationship into the law, he was perfect. So when the followers of the way as the early Jewish Christians were called, started preaching this blasphemy about this guy named Jesus of Nazareth that we crucified and took care of being the son of God, Saul was certainly not going to sit idly by and let that distorted truth warp their tradition. In fact, Saul is very first introduced to us at the stoning of Stephen, the very first Christian martyr recorded in the book of Acts. He wasn't part of the stoning. He just watched everybody's coats and got a front row seat to his elders and what they were doing. And so pretty soon he follows course. Paul starts ravaging, or Saul at the time, starts ravaging the church is how the book of Acts describes it, ravaging the church. Dragging the followers of Jesus off to jail, he was, quote, breathing murderous threats. And he was feared everywhere Christians heard his name. He mentions that part of his life in another one of his letters to the church in Galatians. In that letter, he writes to them, I'm sure you've heard of my former life when I was violently persecuting the church of God and trying to destroy it. I had advanced in our religion beyond many of my people of the same age, for I was more passionate, more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors than my peers. That's what Paul writes about himself. Saul was the quintessential example of passionate religion breaking bad, of religion getting warped and sick. At that stage of his life, he's this picture of how how religion often starts to work in us and the dead end that it can create when it starts to get warped. You see, Saul, at that time in his life, he's really trapped in this kind of black and white thinking where he sees the world as the good guys and the bad guys, us who are right and everybody else who aren't we who are the insider righteous and everybody else, us who are clean and all the unclean out there. That's how he saw the world. And here's the thing. It is so similar to the framework that American Christianity has tried to install in so many of us. That framework is so similar to much American Christianity. But something happens to Saul along the way. He's in the middle of his persecution and he's on his way to Damascus when he encounters a presence of God unlike anything he's known. It's the mysterious presence of the risen Christ. And he has this moment where everything he thought was true gets turned upside down on its head. And he starts to realize that in the name of his passionate belief in God, in the name of his religion, he has become a murderer. In the name of the love of God, he has become hate. In the name of being right and correct, he's become deadly wrong. And in that moment, this change, it significantly shapes how Saul, who then becomes Paul, understands what the good news is and what the gospel is. He begins to start to realize as he processes this just how corrupt any religious system can be when it starts to see the whole world in terms of insiders and outsiders, us and them. When it starts to see the whole world as the saved and, and the unsaved, the righteous and the unrighteous, he has a front row seat to just how corrupt religion can be when its goal becomes correctness and purity rather than relationship. And so for the rest of his life, Paul becomes this great critic of immature, self-serving religion, and becomes a, a champion of religion that is exposing and healing what is broken broken in us. This champion of a religion that's rooted in relationship with the presence of God. And so we see again and again throughout Paul's different letters that faith is not anymore for him primarily defined or recognized by a set of religious codes or beliefs because he's been down that road and he knows how corrupt it can be. But instead, faith becomes defined and recognized by the fruits of the Spirit. It's about our transformation in God, our recreation, our being made new, not about being right and having all the answers. And so rather than being correct... Paul teaches and preaches about being connected, about being transformed by the love of God that is being poured out, a love that he has known and experienced firsthand. You see, when he writes what we heard earlier, that God demonstrates God's own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul is writing from his personal experience of recognizing just how sinful he was and yet at the same time encountering this transformational love of God. And he knows firsthand what it means to be a, quote, enemy of God, as he puts it, not because of God's posture towards him or towards us, but because of our own posture towards what God is up to in the world. And yet at the same time, as our posture pushing against what God is up to, encountering the profound love of God made known in Christ, a love that was already being poured out. You see, these are not just a theological words and systems for Paul. They are personal experience for Paul. He's writing out of his own story. And when you hold his story in your mind, his writings start to take on a whole different life. You see, the one who was once this violent religious zealot who then encounters this radical life-changing presence of Christ that reorients everything for him, writes, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Simply by faith, by trusting in God's love that we've discovered, we have access into this grace in which we now stand. It's verse 2. We have been made righteous. And as we said last week, that doesn't be, be, mean being made perfect, but being brought back into relationship with God. That's what he says in verse 9. Through Christ, we have reconciliation. We have restored relationship with God. Verse 11. This has been Paul's experience. It's an experience that he knows is not just about him or for him. But if God's love was reaching out to him, then surely it must be reaching out to everyone else. And so in the very middle of this passage in verse 5, he says that the love of God has been poured into our hearts. And the form of that verb he uses here is, is one that happened and is ongoing It's in the past, and it is still happening now. He's describing a love that has been and continues to be poured out, the love of God. A love that's being poured in our hearts today, and it will be poured into our hearts tomorrow. No matter how far we turn from God, no matter how blind we have been, no matter how much we are pushing against the very work of God in this world, that love is being poured out. It's offered to you, and it always will be. See, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more because it's already always there. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you less because it is already and always there. All that there is is ignoring that love and pushing against it or receiving it and living through it. And that is what's being revealed to us in Jesus. It's what he shows us. Which actually brings us to one other word and idea that we do need to deal with here. And that's the word wrath. If that's true, what do we do with the wrath of God that he mentions here as well as in other places in Romans? You see, much of what I'm trying to help us do is dismantle the American Christian imagination of, of what even that means, the wrath of God. Remember, Last week, how I said maybe we have the wrong picture in our mind about what salvation is. It's not a stick man on a napkin where you're on one cliff and God is on another cliff and you're so far apart from one another. We start with the wrong picture in our mind, right? Well, what if the same is true with the word wrath? What if we have the wrong picture in our mind? Because you see, often when I hear something like wrath or the wrath of God, what comes to my mind at first is this angry God who is out to destroy us. Almost like this black, angry tornado that's going to land right down in the center of our life and just blow it all up. But what if I've got the wrong picture in my mind of what that phrase means? What if the wrath that Paul is describing is really just what it is like to live pushing against the love of God that is always flowing into our world and the power of that love at work in the world. Remember, that's what Paul was doing for so long as Saul, He was pushing against that. He wasn't living in the flow of God's life and love. He was pushing against it, and eventually the power of that life and love knocked him off his high horse and blinded him for several days in order to help him begin to see. It was never there to destroy Saul. It was the power of love pushing against the powers of death and destruction that were trying to live themselves in and through Saul. And the same is true today. What if our image of wrath was not this angry tornado that was going to drop down to destroy us, but instead our image is more like the painful cut of a surgeon's knife who is going in to remove a cancer out of our life in order to save us? What if the wrath of God is simply our experience of the power of God's love for us trying to change us and for the world trying to change the world? The power of a loving God who's coming to change you and to create life and reconciliation and shalom And we experience it as something pushing against us so hard because it's pushing against the powers of death and selfishness and division that are still alive in us. When you hear or read of the wrath of God, I think what we should be picturing is the power of God's love that is flowing into us to change us. For example, it's the power of God's love flowing into our society to continue to try to dismantle racism that's still alive in our culture and that's still alive in hearts like mine in ways that I don't recognize it. And that can be painful. It's the power of God's love to dismantle greed and selfishness that's still trying to infect my life and certainly still infecting our society today. When you see the Wrath of God is like the power of love to change our world. That's a very different image, isn't it, than the American Christian idea of God's wrath as this thing that's coming to destroy you, a wrath that we have to be saved out of. One is a wrath that's there to destroy you because you've offended God. The other is the power of God's love to change you, a change that sometimes requires painful surgery in your life. And when we gaze upon the very life of Jesus and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and then we start to follow the way of Jesus, that too might require some painful changes, but those changes are for the sake of love and they tilt us back towards the path of life and living in the flow of God. And in that following of Jesus, you are being saved from the death that was trying to live in you, And you're being saved from pushing against the love of God that's trying to destroy those things in you. And you're starting to work with it as you follow Christ. This is what the good news of Jesus is all about. That we can actually live in God's love and its power at work in our lives. That we can participate in it. And the same love that was poured out and sparked Creation in the very beginning, the same love that was poured out and sparked the sun and the moon and the stars, same love that's in the wind rustling wrestling in the leaves and, and is in the rain that keeps pouring down on the ground to allow things to grow, that same love, it's being poured out in our hearts here and now, this day and always, and we can live in it and with it, so that it can create life and goodness in it. Our invitation is just to recognize it, to live in its flow the same way Jesus did, and allow that to carry us away. This is the mystery of the gospel, a mystery that I am not ashamed of, So may you also know and experience its power for your salvation. Amen.